It's 11 o'clock, and it's time for London's most thought-provoking talk, the Jim Chapman News Hour on 94.9 CHRW. And now, here's your host, Jim Chapman. Hey, all you fans of uh, Lost, the television series out there. I am going to make your day today. Or maybe I'm going to ruin it, depending on how you react to what I'm going to say about that show. Because, yes, I am going to explain the television series Lost to you, because everyone seems to be lost on Lost these days. Uh, welcome to the Jim Chapman News Hour. And no, I am not Jim Chapman. Uh, Jim's not in today. We'll be back next week. And uh, I'm filling in for the whole hour, uh, this being Wednesday, of course, uh, Normally we have left, right, and center at the half-hour mark, and uh, also not joining us today will be Jeff Schlemmer. So thanks, guys. You're leaving me alone here, and I'm uh, uh, going to appreciate the opportunity. Because of that, I'm going to do something a little bit different from what I think most of you have been used to. I know a lot of you have heard me talking on left, right, and center for eight years now or more. We started in 97. Um, you know, about political issues. I'm certainly going to be doing that today, but at the half hour when Jeff normally would be coming in, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about something I really haven't had a chance to talk much about on, uh, certainly on this show, and that's, uh, television shows in general. I mean, is TV really as bad as so many people say? Uh, it's very funny, too, because I came into the university grounds this morning and was greeted by Jim at the gate at the parking lot there, and he asked me, what are you doing on the show today? And I mentioned I'm going to talk a bit about television. He said, well, he doesn't watch it anymore. He thinks all of it's terrible. He doesn't think there's any choice out there. But anyways, that's in the second half. Also, uh, the demise of TV Guide. I, I know a lot of you remember used to have a, a guide you could go to at your grocery store and pick up, and you know it was on TV, especially with all the choices you have today. Uh, well, I have a personal account of why I think TV Guide went under, and it's a little bit different from uh, what's been talked about in the past. And you've heard of computer spam. Uh, well, what about television spam? Does that bother you like it bothers me? That's something else I want to get into. You'll find a common theme to the whole show today, even though the second half is going to be mostly about television. And, of course, I will reveal my secret theory on what I think the show Lost is all about. And I do have to warn you because I've tried my theory on my friends who are fans and... Uh, the reaction was not always positive. I seem to have almost spoiled the show for them in some ways. And in others, I think it makes, if you listen to my theory, I think you'll find it makes the show a little more uh, something to appreciate because you realize the art that you are looking at. But anyways, before we do that, I want to get in, in the first half of the show, sticking to things a little bit more political. And I'm going to use the opportunity. I've got to watch my time here today because uh, regardless of where I get to, on these topics. I'm going to cut myself off around the half hour so I can do all the things I just promised you that I would do. But really, I want to talk about this morning uh, what I would call six phony issues that that are always in our papers. You see them every day. And I know you're going to say, well, Bob, those are the issues of the day. Those are the things that you know I read about in the free press every day. And you're right, they're in there every day. But I really think most of these issues are not the real issue, let's put it that way. They don't really have that much to do with the reality of that issue. And, and the issues are these, basically, and they're just in a nutshell, violence, uh, pornography, drugs, poverty, children, 
and the environment. Yes, believe it or not, the environment. I think the way that's being pushed is a bit of a phony issue. Uh, a couple weeks ago when I was sitting in here on the show for Jim as well, I did a whole hour on that, so I'm not going to dwell that long on it, that issue when I get to it, but we'll certainly uh, bring up a few, a few new things that I didn't say last time. But violence, let's start with violence. Why do I think violence is a is a phony issue? Certainly real violence, if it happens to you, is is something serious and something that has to be dealt with, but is that a political issue? When I say phony issue, I mean, uh, is it really what in politics the issue is all about? You know, every time you turn on... Now, for violence, I think, takes two forms. We hear more about violence in media, really, than we do about uh, real violence. Um, but they're, they're two sides of the same coin in many people's minds. I think they're very different from each other. But, uh, you know, you can't turn on a TV show without at the beginning of the show being warned, like something like, this program contains scenes of violence. Viewer discretion is advised. Personally, I think viewer discretion is advised any time you turn on your TV, especially for all those shows that don't contain uh, warnings of violence. Some of them are a lot worse than the shows that contain the warnings of violence. Um, you know, when I see these warnings all the time, I I feel like I'm having my hand slapped, like I'm being told I should be uh, guilty or, or, you know, I'd be anxious about watching this show. You're a bad person. You should not be watching this show. That's almost the message that comes across. And uh, I know a lot of people will say, oh, no, the, the warnings are there so that we can judge what to watch and figure out what's good for our kids. And I would say, yeah, that's something you could use them for. But, again, that gets down to another issue, the children, which I think is a phony issue a bit in, in this regard, too. But, uh, you know, the issue is, why do we have to be warned about everything all the time, you know? A good television show is always a, about a conflict, and the conflict is generally about good and evil. And when you talk about banning violence or reducing violence in media, especially in entertainment, what you're doing is you're slurring the difference and the distinction, I think, um, between good and evil, Sure, there's a lot of shows with violence in it, but I think most of the shows, and i got to repeat this, you know, that bear violence warnings are actually shows that pre preach the proper morality with regard to the use of force and with regard to the use of violence. Uh, you know, shows like uh, Star Trek, which I'll be talking a little bit about later, they, they, have to, they have these warnings on, warning, warning, you know. The show is dangerous. Watch out. It's violent. It's got violence in it. When in actual fact, the whole philosophy of Star Trek is about peace and cooperation and issues like that, and yet we're being warned that this show is, is all about violence, you know. Yes, shows have acts of violence in them, but I think the issue is whether the use of force is justified. That's what makes something right or wrong. It must be just, and whether you like it or not, uh, the forces of good are ultimately held together, ultimately by, if you've got a good government, it acts as an agency of force. That's what it's there to do, and force is at the root of everything. But when used justly, that's what the issue is all about. And it concerns me when you hear, you know, advocates of censorship. You know, we should censor violence, which is often the real issue. Um, basically, they're advocating an act of violence. And so, you know, practice what you preach. You either live in a society where you believe in persuasion or you believe in force. Now, violence in reality, not on TV, is a whole other situation, of course. You know, basically the big issue here, too, might be, I guess, gun control. 
We see a great effort on the part of our governments to control weapons of defense, you know, restrictions on the right to defend yourself, even in the privacy of your own home if you're being robbed or intruded upon. But it's important to remember that if you're a citizen of a free society, that to have a right means that you have the right to use force to keep and secure that which you have a right to. So if you can't do that, you don't have a right to it. That's almost what you, you have to understand, and it all comes down to that. It doesn't make it good or evil, right or wrong, but it can be just. It's about justice and an injustice. So that, uh, you know, if you own something, of course, you can't arbitrarily harm someone if you're defending yourself or your property. It has to be an act of self-defense, and one is always subject to the judgment of one's peers with regards to all of this. But uh, I think that's a big issue as well, is that, again, we're seeing a, a philosophy of you can't defend yourself, and then people start thinking, well, criminals have more rights than, than homeowners, and it, and it comes across that way in many ways. I think we'd see a great improvement in a reduction in violence if uh, we you know, weren't so much against doing so many things against good people, people who are just watching TV and wanting to enjoy a good show or wanting to defend their home and their family. I think uh, we have to start doing a big rethink on how we look at issues of justice and self-defense. Issue number two, I was talking about, you know, the issue of pornography. It keeps rearing its head all the time, especially with the Internet. Um, not much I can really say about this issue, except that the real issue behind the people who are concerned with it, of course, is censorship. They, whenever I listen to a talk show or I hear people talking about their objections to uh, sexual material, either on TV or wherever it is, you can hear they're carrying a bit of baggage with them, that, that they certainly aren't subjecting to that particular instance. They're, they object to all of it, any, any expression of sexuality. And uh, I don't think that's particularly healthy in and of itself. I think the way to deal with pornography, especially with children, is to, uh, A, keep it away from them as much as possible. And secondarily, uh, you know, don't deny that sexuality exists with kids. I mean, they have to understand that uh, they're going to be responsible for their own actions and that there are consequences. And that those are the kinds of things that, should be concentrated on. I think the, the, the issue there, again, is somebody wanting to get into government and, and, and influence opinions and things like that. It's, I find it always interesting that uh, we so easily bend over to, to uh, you know, legally speaking, to religious groups and groups that have objections to sexual material, even though they may be in a minority, while it's clear that the industry has, is reaping billions and billions and billions of dollars. There's a tremendous demand for it. And yet, the voice of the people who are, quote, the voice, end quote, you know, in the marketplace, of the people who are actually consuming this material seems to be ignored all the time, uh, and especially in reference to people who think it somehow causes harm and who associate some of the other actual bad things that are happening in society with an increase in, again, violence on TV, pornography on TV, and things of that nature. Uh, I think the bottom line on this is that sex sells, and not just to people interested in watching it, but especially to people who want to ban it. So, I mean, uh, another issue, of course, that, that fits into this category that I call... And by the way, the thing, too, that that is common to these issues that I think you'll discover as I go along is... is that it's it's an attitude we've had in society lately where instead of blaming the behavior, the bad behavior of someone who's done something terrible on the person themselves, we want to blame it on some kind of object, some kind of influence outside themselves. It was the gun. It was the show he saw on TV. It was that 
collection of pornography he had, when in fact it might have been a little bit of all, it might have been of none. You have no way of knowing, but you can't keep looking to outside objects to determine what really motivates people. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's just terrible what we can do with the law when we get into trying to regulate things of this nature. Drugs are another example. Um, I mean, the real issue behind the whole, all of our drug laws, which are relatively recent in human history, um, up until uh, basically one lifetime ago, as I said when I was on the show last time, I think it was in the 1920s or so, that, that marijuana was banned along with some other drugs. That was a first. Those things were not banned uh, before that time. But, of course, uh, drug laws are the real problem we've had since then, not drugs per se. And, you know, the, it's a little understandable why people would think that drug laws it's, would help and, and help people not be on drugs, which anyone has to agree is a desirable thing. I don't think we want to see everybody out there constantly on drugs or harming themselves in ways that they shouldn't, but they're going to do it anyway, whether they're smoking cigarettes or whatever. I don't think the law really should get involved until uh, there are some sort of ramifications between the people involved, like if someone on drugs or on alcohol or something causes harm to someone else, you deal with that issue. And you can take the, into account the fact that he's... Uh, you know, doing drugs and things like that in the sentencing stage of it. But certainly, uh, one thing we really have to realize is that the biggest supporters of drug laws are the drug users themselves. Uh, they've, it's, if you want to see a great example of this, again, I br we brought this up on the show many times in arguing, with, especially with Jeff, who hates this movie, and it's The Godfather. But you see in there a situation where you know, organized crime and the police are all getting together to start selling heroin and some of the harder drugs. And the only person objecting to it in that show is, of course, Don Corleone, played by uh, Marlon Brando. And uh, so, you know, in, in that whole sea of bad guys, he was the good guy in that movie, I guess. Anyways, it, it's really funny that uh, we have this symbiont relation be relationship between organized crime and the government. There's a lot of advantages to having drugs illegal, for the people who benefit from it, uh, the biggest one being they don't have to pay any taxes. Think about that. You know, Tax-free money, that's uh, the money they save on taxes is more than they'd ever pay on penalties and fines if and when they get caught, and usually it's the wrong guy that gets caught anyway. And, uh, you know, at the root of the whole thing, it's just a market that everybody is participating in voluntarily somewhere down the line, despite its ramifications. I don't think drug laws help people. Um, get off drugs. I think we, we'd be able to help people get off drugs much easier in the absence of such restrictions. Anyways, before I go on to the next issue, I think we'll be taking a break now, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of these messages. Welcome back. Uh, Jim's not in again today. I, uh, it's Bob Metz here sitting in for Jim on uh, the usual Wednesdays when I do come in and join Jim anyway for our usual boat in left, right, and center with uh, Jim, myself, and Jeff Schlemmer. Jeff is also not in today, uh, so I've got the floor to myself for the next hour. And as you know, in a little while, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, some of my opinions on the television sis uh, situation today, TV shows and what's out there. And, and uh, you might be surprised about some of the comments I might come up with. But right now, I'll continue with what some... What are I've been calling some of the phony issues, the, the things that we read so much about but aren't really the real issue on the surface. Another one's poverty. 
And Lord knows who wants to be poor, you know. Honey, I've been rich and I've been poor, and poor is better, I think Sophie Tucker once said, <laughs> or, or, or and rich is better. <laughs> Sorry, got that one backwards. But uh, the real issue is not poverty. The real issue is wealth. It doesn't take any effort or understanding or knowledge or any insight to create poverty. That's pretty easy. We're all born poor. It's our natural state. You know, if you want, if you're into nature, you you come into this world naked and penniless. That's how it starts. And unless you do something and understand what you have to do to create wealth, we will always remain poor, either as a group or as individuals. And it's it's tragic. It's one of the biggest tragedies of our time, I think, that that our politicians, in particular, do not understand the process of wealth creation and tend to sell their benefits to us on the, on promises of spending the wealth that those of us who do create wealth actually have. And they just, you know, anti-government, or anti-poverty, sorry, anti-poverty programs that are run by government all have one thing in common, and they actually destroy wealth. They operate on nothing but a system that is redistributive. In other words, they rob Peter to pay Paul. But if you want to cure poverty, you have to, uh, create a lot of wealth and make sure that wealth can be created. And that requires people putting out effort, taking risks, and placing barriers that sound like they're helping the poor, things like minimum wages, which which do nothing, especially for the poor. Minimum wages do a lot and benefit a lot. The, the richer parts of the labor force, in particular unions, who are, of course, the biggest supporters of minimum wages. Think about that for a minute. So... Uh, you know, you have to look at the bigger picture. And if you want to create wealth, you have to have free markets. And, and a free market is not like a free-for-all where you do everything. There are rules to a free market. It just means that the prices and the contracts and the deals are determined by the participants in the market according to that set of rules. And that the government does not determine prices. And the government does not affect the supply of things by passing laws and ar- arbitrarily restricting things. That is really what is meant by a free market. It doesn't mean there's no rules and people do anything they want. In fact, they're very strict rules, and they're generally along the lines of, uh, you know, law and order, contract law, things of that. Uh, the marketplace is not the law of the jungle, as so many people would like to say. It is, in fact, the very opposite of that. It's the law of persuasion and of cooperation. And uh, whenever governments get in the way, Whenever they interfere, they're destroying that persuasion and that force of cooperation. It creates wealth, and that's really what wealth is all about. Uh, When people act in their own interest, there is that invisible hand, as Adam Smith talked about. Um, Not the biggest fan of Adam Smith, but it was a great analogy in describing how, without any conscious effort on the part of a government, uh, a whole nation created wealth for itself, because primarily because it was left alone and, and I think if we learned a little bit more about uh, how markets work and how economies work and I think if everyone took in basic education in school how a supply and demand curve looks on a board so they understand the relationship uh, between commodities and prices and things it's very simple to understand economics is not a difficult thing and I've always wondered why uh, you have to almost be in uh, college where I was uh, before I was really exposed to any economic study of any significance. It should be as basic as reading, writing, and arithmetic. Anyway, that's what I think. Uh, next subject, children. Uh, a phony issue. Now, 
when I say a phony issue, of course, I mean in the sense, in a different context. Children, of course, have to be protected. Children, of course, have, are dependent upon their parents. And it's, that's not the angle I'm talking about. The angle I'm talking about is when children are being used, for example, to ban stuff for adults or to, you can't have this because the kids might watch. Well, you know, anytime I talk about rights or even anything to do with politics, I'm really never talking about children. I always assume I'm talking about adults because children are a separate category at all times. Children don't have rights in the sense that adults do. They have a status, and it's up to the adults to exercise their rights and to protect those kids under that status. And there's another side of, of the, the, the children issue, which actually is about the kids themselves. And I think it's arguing that kids don't have values and, and, and blaming it again on the things I was just talking about a little while ago, you know, violence and, and in the media and exposure to sex and drugs and all those things. And, and the one thing that they never, ever really blame it on, although we hear a little, but I think the bigger influence is parents, teachers, and the community leaders in in both religion and in politics uh, who are continually, in effect, I think, teaching them not to have values and to remain children for as long as possible. Um, So many kids are taught that there's no black and white, there's no right and wrong. Uh, Above all, don't judge others, can't judge anybody else for heaven's sakes. Uh, uh, Zero tolerance for violence and drugs and sex and you know, this is just a prescription. I think uh, zero tolerance is another way of saying uh, 100% to- intolerance for you know programs for minds that will not think. You know, judge not, lest ye be judged. It's the second half of that equation that people don't seem to pay attention to anymore or understand. In fact, I think uh, rather than saying that we shouldn't judge, I think the statement demands that we judge, but that we recognize that in in judging that we ourselves will be judged. Often I think it's people who are afraid of being judged themselves who go around preaching that we shouldn't judge. Um, After all, every choice we make is a judgment. Everything I say on this show is open to judgment. You're free to disagree with me. Certainly my opinion is not the cold, hard truth all the time. It's my best understanding of it. But in order to refine my understanding of that, to me, I think part of the process is leaving oneself open to that external judgment, uh, to listen to opinions that are different from yours, especially if you can rationally and honestly look at them and say, yes, there's some validity to that. Uh, you often hear opinions over and over again that you've already dismissed, and then the person coming back at you thinks you're not listening to them, but uh, uh, you already decided a long time ago the world is round and not flat, and so you just have to dismiss certain arguments. But that's, uh, I think that's all part of it. You, we have to learn uh, learn to judge and learn that there is right and wrong and teach kids, too, that they have a right to defend themselves because they're going to be adults and they're going to have rights uh, when they when when they become adults, and we want that we you know if you're looking for a, a good future, we want to make sure our kids are going to walk into a world that they understand and that they can react to in a rational way. And of course, uh, gee, I'm really surprised I'm actually maybe get all these subjects into my time frame here. Um, the last of the quote phony issues I wanted to touch on, which I spent a whole hour on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jeff joined me for half of that, and we had a good talk about it. And that's, of course, uh, uh, climate change, the environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, if you stop to think about it, the weather is always going through a climate change. It, it, weather doesn't sit still. It just doesn't. It's either going up with temperature, et cetera, or it's going down. 
Um, it just doesn't sit still. So at any point in time, at any measurement in history, you're going through climate change because tomorrow's not going to be the same today as today even in the weather. So how can we say that we have to have some sort of standard of, you know, suddenly we decided that climate had to be frozen the way it was in, uh, uh, what's the year now, 1991, I think they're working with. So however the weather was then, that's what they want to have from, from now on. seems to me, you know, and then there's all this, uh, popularity of uh, an inconvenient truth, Al Gore, and uh, personally I think the inconvenient truth is that most politicians are pretty much liars and hypocrites on this issue. Uh, the green movement, of course, is really a red non-movement, and uh, the real green that the environmentalists are after is your money. That's what the green movement's all about. If there was no money there that was really the green movement, you wouldn't be hearing about the environmental movement. But uh, an interesting item came to my attention. You might have already heard this. Maybe Jim even already covered this before, but it's it's quite humorous. I understand uh, Dennis Miller brought this to the attention of uh, the American public a little while ago. It's an article from Newsweek magazine about climate change. And I uh, just want to read you the highlights of it. I just picked a couple of sentences out of here. Uh, and this is quoting from Newsweek. Quote, there are ominous signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change dramatically and that these changes may portend a drastic decline in food production with serious political implications for just about every nation on Earth. The drop in food output could begin quite soon, perhaps only 10 years from now. The evidence in support of these predictions has now begun to accumulate so massively that meteorologists are hard-pressed to keep up with it. Climatologists are pessimistic that political leaders will take any positive action to compensate for the climatic change or even to allay its effects. They concede, now get this, that some of the more spectacular solutions proposed, such as melting the Arctic ice cap by covering it with black soot, or diverting Arctic rivers might create problems far greater than those they solve. But the scientists see few signs that government leaders anywhere are even prepared to take the simple measures of stockpiling food or of introducing the variables of climate uncertainty into economic projections of future food supplies. The longer the planners delay, the more difficult will they find it to cope with climactic change once the results become grim reality. Well, folks, that was Newsweek magazine. Only that was April 28. 1975, and the subheading on the on the heading up there said the cooling world, and the rest of the article is all full of all of the evidence to, that proves the Earth is cooling and how uh, huge chunks of ice where there weren't where there wasn't ice before have formed in the Antarctic and other places. You know, I'm starting to wonder now. Maybe that ice that was forming in the 70s is the ice that we're watching melt today. I don't. I can't really say that. That's the same thing, but I know from so many different reports that uh, the ice caps aren't melting on, in Antarctica the way they are. They certainly there's some visible stuff on the northern part of the hemisphere, but that's also happening on the planet Mars when it comes right down to it. So it comes down to the scientific myopia, this literalism. When when science first discovers something, they just run with it like 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 
You know, everything is dependent on that. You remember the ozone layer? We didn't know about the ozone layer for a long time, so how did they really know when it was normal and when it wasn't? You know, you discover the ozone layer on December 2nd some year, and you think it has to look like that all the time from then on, never having realized it in the past. Maybe it dissipated, maybe it got bigger. All of this is relatively new to us. And and the great danger here is, of course, um, the whole issue of, of the environment is being put, and I saw this in the paper on just a couple of days ago in the Free Press, you know, uh, it's the earth or the economy. It's economics versus the environment, you know, and, and this is a completely false dichotomy. I think what they're really talking about, and I'm sure what they're really talking about, it's not about economics uh, versus the environment or the earth versus the economy. It's about a free economy versus a controlled economy. You're going to have an economy either way. Is it going to be free or is it going to be controlled? And that is what the environmental issue is all about, in my opinion. We'll be back right after these messages. We're going to talk about television and what do you think about TV. We'll see you soon. And welcome back to the Jim Chapman News Hour. No Jim, no Jeff here today, but I'm here with you, Bob Metz. Uh, this is normally... Roughly, you know, the time of day on the Wednesday when, when both Jim and I are together talking about uh, various issues of the day, usually on the premise of things that Jim throws at us and brings up. Uh, today I get a chance to pick on something a little bit different, and maybe I can't tell you it's going to be non-political, but because uh, I just can't, you know, keep my head out of that thing. I'm one of those myopic people myself. But I guess I'm going to call this next section, you know, the call it the television consumer capers of Bob Metz. I mean, I've... I've, uh, I have to tell you, like, um, Jim at the gate that I talked about earlier, I was just about ready to give up on TV, on regular TV shows. I don't, I don't, I don't have a huge budget for, for entertainment. I don't go to a lot of movies. Uh, for me, a movie is more of a, a social event. If I go, it's not a, it's not, I'm not going out to watch that particular show per se, even if it's good, even if it's, you know, what, whatever it is. But I do enjoy watching TV and I find it frustrating and I have for quite a while. That with all the the options I get on on Rogers, I I, um, I don't have the basic. I have just one above that. I'm not sure what that level is called, but I don't have any external devices or, or the movie channel. I just get uh, I still get around. I'm guessing 60 to 80 choices and channels on there. Uh, thank goodness this past week. I don't know if uh, you folks on Rogers noticed that uh, they they gave us a couple of movie channels and BBC and took a couple other things away that I didn't even know were there. So for me, uh, that was an improvement. Nevertheless, uh, I found that if I wanted to watch a TV show, particularly at a time when I had the time, I had to play the time-shifting game. And I got into, when when VHS came out, I collected all my favorite shows and had them on VHS collection. I had everything from from Columbo with Peter Falk to uh, Star Trek. Just taped them off TV, you know, and uh, watched them when I wanted. And um, But basically what happened was... Uh, in around 2003 or so, I, I got myself a computer that could digitize and uh, basically take my TV shows that I got off TV and turn them into DVDs, and I could edit the commercials out and and store them in much, much less space than was the situation with all the VHS tapes I had. I had a closet full of VHS tapes and discovered I wasn't really watching them that much either because uh, <laughs> I'm so lazy sometimes by the time it takes to rewind a tape to get to the point where you want to watch it, you, you've changed your mind, you're going to watch something else. But anyways, 
2003 comes along, and uh, roughly a couple of years ago, I might be off by a year, but I was just about to give up until this show, uh, Lost, showed up on the scene, and I said, oh, wow, thank goodness all those reality shows are maybe taking uh, a, a bit more of a back seat. This show actually had a plot. It actually was it had something to it. And something I've discovered since I started, you know, I made an effort now to go look for television shows for... Uh, I actually peruse every TV guide I can get. Uh, there is no TV guide anymore, which I want to talk about in a sec. But uh, it's hard if you really want to find shows you like. And not, not necessarily the new ones, uh, some of the old ones too. And they have them on at all odd hours and times of the day. And generally, you know, I believe that there are a lot of good shows on television. But I don't always believe you have to watch good shows. There's some really goofy and crappy shows that I might watch because they can be fun too. But in general, uh, and I really believe this, I think if, if you find a good television show, it's generally better than some of the best movies out there. A movie only has to grab you once to get you in the theater. They got your money, and uh, so long, Charlie. We'll see you later. A television show, uh, they got to keep making you want to come back, and they want to, you know, you want to come back for a reason. So in, in a lot of ways, I think that, uh, Television shows offer quality if you're looking for it and if it's the kind of show you like. Um, I'm certainly a little bit out of sync when I see the top ten shows in Canada. I, I don't think I hardly ever watch CSI, but the only show in the top ten I saw there that I watch, and it's not, you know, Desperate Housewives. I do watch it. Not one, not, not one of my top faves, but it's probably the only one in that list that I even watch. Just to tell you a little bit of the adventure I went on just trying to find things, in terms of getting the shows, what I would do is I would I do everything basically on on a VCR. I would tape it and and uh, watch the show later because just the lifestyle I have. I I'm, I'm not generally there during the the uh, what they call the prime time hours. And a lot a lot of times I find myself watching uh, the shows that you might be watching in the evening. I'll be watching them the next morning or even a couple of days later or maybe on the weekend. You know, and in an age when broadcasters are moving their programming around continuously, I think this is a problem with some of the new shows keeping their ratings up. It certainly happened to Lost recently. They took too big a break, and it hurt their their uh, ratings a bit from what I hear. I used to have a, a subscription to TV Guide magazine. I don't know if you've noticed that this magazine has disappeared from the scene. It no longer exists. And I knew that its demise was coming almost uh, just after the magazine was taken over by, quote, uh, the Canadian, you know, Canadian content regulations, and it became a Canadian magazine rather than the original uh, American U.S. Digest that it used to be. And one of the first things I remember seeing in, in, in uh, TV Guide was the editor uh, preaching about how important Canadian content was and we need regulations and you should support your local politician to give more money to Canadian magazines and all that stuff. And I'm thinking... You got a gold mine here, you know. People have got televisions. They want to. You should be servicing that market, and uh, they just weren't doing that for some reason. Uh, they seemed to think that uh, form was more important than than content in a lot of times, and they got into more features than listings, which is what people were buying the magazine for. Um, there was that period there where they went from a digest to pony size. And, uh, which I didn't mind. It certainly uh, wasn't a digest anymore. And maybe the pony size was, it's a little bit bigger. Uh, and it was handier, uh, for, the, especially for the graphs with all the extra stations and everything, the charts and the things like that. But then as, as it went on, I noticed, uh, as I was going through, some of my shows were missing. And I noticed the TV guide wasn't, uh, 
they dropped the early hour morning list, listings, you know, that period between uh, 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. And there was a lot of great shows in there, especially if you like the old stuff. You could find anything from 12 o'clock high, um, you know, all the silly comedies from the Beverly Hillbillies, if you like that stuff, on weird channels at 4, 4 to 6 in the morning. And uh, But they weren't listing them anymore. And then I discovered... Uh, uh, you know, they started to drop independent listings. Suddenly the U- U.S. network started disappearing, CBS, NBC, ABC, and they didn't have uh, Channel 43, uh, UPN, I, th- I think was what it was then. Uh, and they stopped listing it. So, and then finally, you know, the final insult, I think, was uh, there was a Christmas edition of TV Guide that came out a few years ago. It was a double edition. And believe it or not, they dropped listings altogether. There were no listings in the TV Guide. And... All they had was recommendations for Christmas shows that you could watch for two weeks. And I'm sitting there, well, what is this? What, what's this? You know, what's my subscription all about? So I phoned them up and I got my money back. But there was a very interesting event that occurred in between that. And when, uh, when I called TV Guide one time, you know, I said, why are you doing this? Why are you, uh, um, getting rid of these listings and all that stuff? Why'd you get rid of the morning listings? And, and the, the fellow on the other side of the phone tells me, he says, well, Mr. Metz, we did a survey. And we discovered that there are fewer viewers between 4 and 6 a.m., so we aren't going to list that anymore. And, uh, you know, I didn't know how to react at first. I'm sitting there shaking my head, and I'm thinking, there are fewer viewers. And I, I says to him, I says, you know, isn't that a little like ordering a phone book and only getting, the you know, half of the numbers because the other half aren't being used enough? And, and I think he got my point. He, he chuckled a bit, and, and uh, I said, you know, I don't watch television at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm not up at that time, but I'd like to know what the listings are because, you know, have you ever heard of a VCR? Have you ever heard of technology, especially in an age where we're going into even more and more technology? But anyways, um, the writing was on the wall. Uh, TV Guide just wanted to become some sort of a feature magazine and didn't want to service the... uh, what I think is a huge growing market. I know a lot of you can get your listings on on digital and on the TV screen, but that's not exactly the same thing, I think, as having it available in print. Uh, it, I'm, the, I'm the kind of guy now where I plan my TV a week or two in advance, and, and I pick the shows I want, I tape them, and, uh, and I'll watch them later. But uh, that's a whole other thing. Um, another issue about television that, that uh, generally bothers me, I don't know how you feel about this, is what I've term you know you're all familiar with with spam on the internet and getting all those unwanted messages in your email and popping up on your screen when you don't want it uh, what i'm wondering is how do you feel about television spam you know how personally i think the tv stations are practically spitting in the face of their viewers when they do this i'm just it just bugs me that much you know i think it's really this is an internet phenomenon for people who really love cluttered screens and a lot of distractions on there um, but it really bugs me. I got to tell you, folks, when you know they come back from a commercial and up comes pops this ad on top of the TV show, and telling you uh, what's coming on next, which is totally useless to me because I'm watching them on video, <laughs> so it isn't coming up next, folks. And uh, you know, or or the weather warning, or some stupid thing that's on there that is absolutely irrelevant to the show that you are watching. And there's even an issue, I think, sometimes with the television station logo, the way some of them are on there. Some of them are very intrusive. I remember, when was it, I was watching the Space Channel a couple of years back, and they switched their logo from that, uh, the Space Identification logo, from that uh, triangle one that they had in the lower right-hand corner to the little uh, circular one now that I suppose is supposed to look like the constellation Andromeda or something like that. 
But when they first introduced it, I remember it being on New Year's Day, because that's the only way I would have had time to do this. It was huge. It took up, like, the lower quarter of the screen, and it was very bright. And uh, I wrote an actual email, a very nice one, a friendly one, to the Space Television Network right away. Uh, First thing on New Year's morning, I don't remember what year it was. But to my astonishment, the next day they made it a smaller one and a less intrusive one. And whether I was the only person that wrote or they got a 1,000 calls that day, I don't know. But maybe I had something to do with helping reduce television spam on your screen. Um, I, I think when they put that on there, I heard there's also a, a movement to uh, some kind of, uh, I guess, uh, something you can sign online, some kind of a uh, sign-up and compl- uh, complaint kind of signing thing where you can uh, protest. Some group has gotten together to protest what stations do at the end of the shows when they talk over all the credits and cut in. Sometimes you don't know who starred in the show or you want to find out a little more about that television show. Uh, I, I see these things as not good for television. I think, in a sense, they're destroying the art form around which their commercialization is based. Um, but that's my uh, my personal beef. And, of course, the last one, just before we go to commercials, is my I uh, really do not like that CRTC regulation that forces cable companies to supersede American simulcasts with a Canadian signal. I I, I guess they do this for reasons of culture and things like that. But when I pay my cable bill, I have bought a certain package. And one thing I've noticed, especially since I've become more critical about what I watch, is that different stations have different uh, frequencies, and, and some come in a little bit better than others. And uh, it bothers me sometimes that they supersede a station that had clearer reception on my television with one that had worse reception just so that I can watch the Canadian signal. I think I'm being ripped off. Uh, A friend of mine actually has a cable company here in the province. I won't mention them just so that nobody will turn them in, but apparently they don't do this. So I don't know whether it's just Rogers that has to do this or if this is right across the board. But it's just another one of those little things that that can muck up your TV a little bit and and make television watching a little less pleasant. And I think uh, let's see what we can do about that. Anyways, let's take a break, and when I come back, I'm going to tell you. Welcome back. It's uh, Bob Metz sitting in for Jim Chapman and sitting in for Jeff Schlemmer today. I get to sit in for both of those gentlemen today. Talking about TV just before the break. You know, uh, sometimes we think we take, uh, some people take entertainment very lightly and some take it very seriously. I think entertainment plays a bigger role in our lives in determining the values we, we, we have and things like that than many of us perhaps uh, suspect. And sometimes you're not aware of it until much later in life. Uh, give me an example in my own case um, in examining how was I influenced. I wasn't born the way I was, thinking the way I do and thinking about politics the way I do. Where did I get those values? How, how did they uh, manifest themselves? Did, did I just suddenly pick up a book by Ayn Rand, which I actually did one day, and read it and get converted or something like that because I used to be pretty much a flaming liberal? No, that's not really the process. And Really funny, when I look back and I see the influences, I go, ah, no wonder. Aha, uh-huh, that's how they got to me. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, when I was in my teens, um, I didn't read a lot of the... I wasn't really a huge comic book fan until Marvel Comics came out with uh, a whole slew of Marvel characters that were a little bit more three-dimensional than, than the ones that were in the, in the DC comics, like Superman and Batman. They all got better after a while, but uh, certainly Stan Lee with his um, Marvel comics uh, 
had a tremendous influence on me. I started reading Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Daredevil. I actually had the complete set of them, including Amazing Fantasy number 15, where Spider-Man first appears. And uh, it's interesting. It was this comic book uh, world I lived in when I was a kid that got me introduced to a notorious person named Mark Emery, who uh, ran City Lights Bookshop here in town. And he's the guy that bought my collection off me and made a small fortune off it. But that's how we originally got to know know each other. But what was even more interesting, as I got older and I look back, I haven't read a Spider-Man comic in a long time, but I, I saw the movie, and it's really weird that the things that I was reading when I was a kid and considered a nerd are all the number one movies today, you know, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. Um, Superman, of course, is uh, is iconic and has a lot of, you know, meaning to a lot of people. But I discovered things like, uh, for example, in uh, Spider-Man, I find out that the original artist of Spider-Man, who was a fellow named Steve Ditko, was a big fan of Ayn Rand. And the philosophy obviously got into the comic strip somehow. It wasn't obvious and it wasn't sticking in your face, although one of the one of the signatures of a comic book, I guess, is when they're in the middle of a fight, uh, there's always this great conversation going on between the combatants. They're philosophizing about which one of them's a good guy, which one's a bad guy, and, and uh, you know, fretting about life and all that, all their anxieties and things. And it made, made it interesting. But I also found out later, too, and um, I was a fan of Star Trek when it first came out in the 60s. What a different show. Um, this, of course, was part of the... Uh, vision of Gene Roddenberry, and, and and I found out later that a lot of the writers who wrote for Star Trek were also influenced by Ayn Rand, and so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that in Star Trek we saw things like the Prime Directive, uh, non-intervention, we saw something like the Federation, you know, which is sort of like the United Nations of Outer Space, and uh, Captain Kirk actually used the term individual rights, and, and you'd get, uh, you know, they, could, they could deal with issues, real issues, on a show that you didn't have to do literally. You could do it figuratively. I mean, where else could you take some, somebody like Captain Kirk, beam him up on a spaceship, and split him in two? So you have two Captain Kirks, one his aggressive side, the other one his passive side, and you can study each one independently. You just can't do that on L.A. law. It just isn't going to pull off. So in, in certainly in science fiction, which is one of my more favorite television venues, not so much in movies, strangely enough, but in television, uh, you have to have that suspension of disbelief. And, uh, of course, even on Star Trek, they, did, they said a lot of stupid things that I don't agree with, you know. The stupidest one being, I think, uh, they shouldn't have brought Spock back to life, by the way. They could have done flashbacks or done some time travel thing, but bringing him back to life, I think that hurt the series a bit, the credibility. I can take so much, but only to a point. One of the silliest things I ever heard said on Star Trek was Captain Picard constantly telling people that they don't use money anymore when you know darn well that uh, Quark is is trading in Latinum or whatever and they play poker every Friday night and they use credits to do this. What is he talking about they don't use money anymore? Uh, what do they use, barter? Uh, how do you have have these spaceships and all this stuff without having something that you call money? You know, I can suspend my disbelief on beaming, warp speed, subspace communication, time travel, but if you're going to tell me there's no money, well, that's uh, that's a little unbelievable for me. Okay, we're coming up near the end of the hour. I've got to tell you, my theory on Lost. Are you lost on Lost? Uh, you know, Lost is, is a bit of a phenomenon because it's a bit, bit, bit of a different show because I don't think... That what you're seeing on the screen is the reality of what the show is about, and I want to toss out my theory uh, as quickly as I can because time is running out. But f- 
for me, Lost is a, is a symbolic show. It's not about what's literally happening on the screen. And I think partially I came to this conclusion about the show um, because I had a chance to sit down and watch it in a run. I did this last summer, I think. Uh, like I tell you, I don't watch them on a weekly basis. I collect them and I sit down and watch it in a run. And if you're not watching it uh, with huge weekly breaks in between, you can really see the cohesiveness of the series and how the show is telling you another story and one day the dominoes fell and I says, oh man, that's what Lost is all about. told a few of my friends who were fans and uh, they promptly got angry at me because I exposed the secret. And it's not what you might think. I know there's a lot of theories and I might be totally wrong about what I'm going to say, but uh, you've heard that, uh, oh yeah, they're not really on the island, they're dead, uh, they're in limbo, um, I've heard they could even be aliens. There were all sorts of speculation. I remember at the beginning of the series there was dinosaurs on the island and things like that. But that is not what I think the show is really about. I think that the show is about really, it's it's symbolic. It's about a group therapy session. And here's how I see the symbolism. The island is a group therapy session. could be a hospital could be an institution, might be a prison, I don't know. Sydney, the airport in, in Australia, is the waiting room. The characters on the island are patients. And they've all got pretty extreme psychological or criminal problems. They're all lost. Psychologically, that's where I think the name of the show comes from. The others, you hear about the others, I think those are the doctors, the administrators and the psychiatrists, because otherwise you can't really explain that, that contradiction that's constantly brought up on the show. And here's a big one for me. I think that when they get killed on the island, that's when they get cured. Or they either are unresolvable or they have dealt with the issue that they came to see about. I think as long as you're on the island, you're in therapy. Uh, the flashbacks, I see them as glimpses of, of their real lives. And, of course, the patients, because they're kind of in a severe situation, they, they view their therapy as this shared island experience and view their doctors as, the, as an enemy or as a threat. And so you get this contradiction where the enemies tell them that, hey, we're your friends, and, of course, they don't see it that way. Anyways, give that theory your thought the next time you watch Lost. I might be proven wrong tonight, but uh, who knows? So far, my theory has worked with, uh, I think, Pretty, ac- pretty good accuracy, and my friends are a little angry about at me about it, but hey, what can you do? We will be back next week, hopefully with Jim and with Jeff, and this is Bob Metz signing off for this Wednesday edition of the Jim Chapman News Hour. Take care. If you've enjoyed this presentation, visit justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing, it's just right.